So can I welcome everybody to uh, this particular uh, Be Thinking talk. This evening we're going to be looking at the subject of the resurrection, or more fully the resurrection of the Son of God. And uh, uh, I'm going to be giving the talk this evening. I hope I will be able to speak clearly enough for everybody to understand. But there are some technical words. Uh, Some of them are uh, explained as we go through. And if you want to ask a question, that will be possible as well. So I'm going to talk about the resurrection of the Son of God, which uh, obviously is a topic in the Bible. But I'm going to particularly refer to this book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, uh, a book by N.T. Wright. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's useful for standing on to get to high shelves as well. Um, so I have, uh, I have actually read all the way through this, um, and I'm going to refer to it. Can I say that I don't uh, automatically agree with everything that uh, Tom Wright has said? In some things I think he's mistaken. But uh, this book, uh, nearly everything he says in this, I, I found very, very helpful. So um, there's uh, Tom Wright. I was uh, lent this book um, that Brian lent me, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, and that uh, too is, uh, is very, very helpful. There's also a very, some very helpful talks on, uh, on the web, on the Be Thinking website, www.bethinking.org. Uh, some very good talks, including one by William Lane Craig. Okay, I'm going to be thinking about the apologetic power of the resurrection, by which I mean uh, it's an argument for the defence of Christianity. An apologia doesn't mean I'm sorry for something, Uh, I apologise, it means I, uh, in this sense, defending Christianity with a strong argument. Negatively, the resurrection, if it is not true, then Christianity is itself false. If somebody can prove, demonstrate that the resurrection is false, mistaken, then Christian faith is demolished at one go. In fact, uh, one of the leading early Christian missionaries, uh, Paul, said, in so many words, if Christ is not raised, our preaching, our message is useless, and so is your faith. So it's absolutely crucial. Negatively, Christianity would be destroyed. Positively, if it is true, then it has very strong implications for the identity of Jesus. It doesn't automatically tell us something, but it leads us to an understanding of who Jesus is. So uh, if it's true, those implications can't be avoided. It also positively um, has implications for the truth of his message. Uh, If the resurrection happened, it says that the things that Jesus said um, also are true. It has strong implications for the existence of God. So it would show that we live in a world which, to say the least, has got supernatural things happening in it which come from some supernatural source. Again, it doesn't follow just straight away. There's a 
train of sequence of ideas but it does have implications in that way and it has those implications whether we like it or not and whether we feel like it or not so the resurrection is um, a fact or I'm saying it's a historical fact which is there whether we like it or not whether we feel it's true or not and that's helpful for Christian people because sometimes their faith goes up and down depending on their circumstances depending on how they're feeling depending even whether it's a sunny day or not and uh, this is true no matter how we feel even at our worst moments as Christians um, here is something that actually stands uh, and in that sense it's, it's a bedrock for Christian experience uh, ok now uh, the, because it's so important the resurrection uh, is objected to now let me first define what I mean by resurrection and this is one of the things in which uh, Tom Wright's book is very very helpful because he has a strong definition of resurrection uh, and his definition is and I think this is a correct definition this is something after physical death after being dead to become physically alive again so he's not talking about life after death you know floating round um, out of body experiences ghosts spirits that's a different thing this is life after that physical life after being dead so do you see there's a, an important statement there about what resurrection actually is it is becoming physical again so having hands and uh, skin and uh, a body so people object and they say that it is intrinsically improbable statistically it's a very rare event and therefore uh, that's an objection they say it is scientifically impossible so this cannot be investigated in some scientific ways you can't reproduce this and test it all over again um, because of the unusual nature of it so here's an objection scientifically impossible and people also say it is historically unprovable or unproven and that does depend on what we mean by history so there are some, some objections and uh, Tom Wright uh, in his book deals with some more focused theological objections which are more the ones I'm going to focus on this evening so here is a resurrection sorry here is an objection that in the Jewish context in which this first happened uh, in the context in which Jewish people saw the things to do with Jesus they used the word resurrection in Greek anastasis mm -hmm. and it is said that they could have meant a variety of things by that so there's one objection which uh, we will look at during the course of this talk uh, here's a second theological objection which says that the Apostle Paul when he uses the word 
resurrection is meaning something spiritual. He does actually use the expression spiritual body. And this objection says, well, he means a ghostly thing, a spirit uh, sort of thing. And here's another uh, objection that the earliest Christians used the language of resurrection, anastasis, to mean Jesus is in heaven. Uh, he is uh, enthroned in heaven. He's uh, very important. Uh, we worship him. And they used language backwards and said, because that's who we believe he is, we will say that he is resurrected. And these objectors say that even when the idea of the empty tomb is used, it's not meant literally. And this sort of objection, uh, I think, was more common in the uh, um, mid-20th century. But anyway, here's what he's uh, saying. Um, in addition to that, it is objected that the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are late and they are inventions. So somebody used their imagination to uh, take a, a, an idea and enlarge it and make up stuff and write it down as Gospel. And uh, further objections that when people uh, in the Bible say they saw Jesus, what they really mean is they saw a vision of Jesus. So the seeings were subjective experiences only. So if you were to say that you could see the Virgin Mary standing there um, and the rest of us couldn't, then that would be a, an experience just of, for you. Um, and what these people are saying is that when in the Bible it says people saw Jesus or met Jesus, they mean they met him in their hearts, they met him as a hallucination, a fantasy or some sort of subjective experience. And lastly, uh, these objectors say um, categorically, whatever else it may mean, Jesus' body was certainly not raised from the dead. Okay, that's... Uh, the objections of these people. So I'll stop just there and say, does anything need to be clarified? Okay. Right. Before we go any further, uh, we need to think about the idea of a world view. Uh, a world view is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. And we take this worldview with us wherever we go, whatever we think about and talk about, we have basic presuppositions. So, um, for example, we might, uh, on a social level, uh, have a presupposition that everybody we meet in England is out to cheat us. Uh, so we would react in a certain way 
to everybody in England if that was our view or alternatively we might have the view that everybody in England is a, an English gentleman with a bowler hat who uh, is going to help us and uh, that would affect the way that we lived our lives. Now here of course is a little bit more profound than that. So if we think historically in European history the Enlightenment was that uh, period in which people began to think in a new way before the Enlightenment there were uh, people believed that there were few secondary causes so for example if there was thunder and lightning people would say this is the hand of God and they wouldn't say God is using low pressure and high pressure and a cold front and a warm front and the structure of clouds they would just say this is directly the hand of God and you can actually see something of this in the writings of Martin Luther who believed in the existence of ghosts and demons in certain forests well rightly or wrongly but that's pre-enlightenment thinking in the time in which the Bible was written they had a world view, things they would assume they would assume that Yahweh, Jehovah, is God that's taken for granted and also they would take for granted that the Bible uh, described his working in the world and that he had made promises to Israel about their peace uh, their living securely in the land and that at that time God's promises still had not been fulfilled and that would be their uh, some of their assumptions as they looked around at the world uh, post enlightenment uh, people's assumptions would be that true freedom lies in removing God and the supernatural so that when we look at the world we exclude God we exclude the supernatural and only things that can be seen and measured are real as in mathematics hard science proving things QED and that is at least part of the view that most of us will have grown up with uh, and perhaps find rather difficult to get rid of in our thinking uh, a postmodern worldview would be slightly different a postmodern worldview would accept that there can be isolated events but find it difficult to believe that this means anything in one big story that there's one meaning behind it all so as we come to this we have to be aware that we bring our own world view to all these things and uh, one other uh, NB we shall use the word history uh, if you come to look at this book you'll find that he has quite a bit about the idea of history as a way of finding things out and we use the word historical in slightly different ways which we might as well just notice as we go through uh, a historical event can simply be an event even though nobody saw it happen so the death of the last pterodactyl assuming you believe in pterodactyls 
We presume that the last one of them must have died sometime. None of us saw it, it's not documented, but we would say that happened in history and is therefore a historical event, even though no one saw it. We also use the word history, or more precisely historic, to mean a significant event. So in English history, 1066 is a significant event. Why is 1066 a significant event in English history? That's the Battle of Hastings. It's when um, England was invaded by the Normans, uh, which were uh, sort of French people. Um, historical can mean a provable event again like in maths or science so the holocaust is a provable event because people were there people have got evidence people have written down their testimony and therefore uh, it is a, a foolish thing and a perverse thing not to believe it however Robin Hood um, we would say is probably not historical in this sense that nobody actually could prove his existence. Um, doing history, being interested in history, writing, talking, going over the events of the past, um, that too can be referred to as history or something that's historical or having historical interest. And again, the meaning is slightly different. So the 4th of July apparently is important for some people. I'll put that there for Brian because he could have told us what that was there for. But um, so for, for the USA that's the um, Independence Day, isn't it? Am I right? I don't know who they're independent from but I expect somebody will tell me. Um, so you have historical novels. Uh, so that they're to do with just history as a general thing. Local history, we use the word in that connection without trying to prove anything or um, I'm just that there are different sort of levels of expectation and people talk about the quest for the historical Jesus um, which is just there there is a, something called the Jesus seminar in the United States and they use historical in a very narrow sense indeed uh, combining three and four that things must be provable in a very reductionist sense. They won't uh, take anything, you know, it, for example, if it was local history, they wouldn't believe it unless you could really find two or three people who could really um, give you exact confirmation of, shall we say, when Lewis Castle was built or something like that. So, uh, the quest for the historical Jesus or it uses the word history it uses it in a very narrow sense and people sometimes use that when they're talking about the resurrection um, they expect uh, something to be proved in a mathematical or um, scientific way which uh, is not the usual way in history anyway so there's a little um, note on that in my personal view there is a sort of spiral at work here that you can start on the outside and say well I don't know really how much I believe about Jesus 
but I certainly believe that he existed and then you can take that honest step and say I wonder what sort of person he was what sort of things he said uh, what sort of things he did and you can pick up on that and you say well he was really more remarkable than I thought he was and then you can move in a little bit and say he was actually extremely special and you can move in a, a little bit further and say it says he rose from the dead it says he did miracles I do tend now to believe that it says that he rose from the dead and you can follow the spiral round in increasing certainty until you yourself might come to be uh, a believer um, having started off as not a believer anyway that's a slightly different thing I'm going to look at the context uh, in which all this took place this is the context of proclamation so that when the first Christians said things about Jesus they said them using certain language believing that people would understand them in a certain way it's the context in which they proclaimed it's uh, quite often said that resurrection is like many other religions so the ancient context would be the source of parallels if there were any so if uh, resurrection ideas are copies of other ideas then the context uh, should provide them and so we're talking about the um, here the non-Jewish world what the Greeks believed what the Romans believed and to a certain extent what the Egyptians believed now um, in uh, Tom Wright's book he goes into this in considerable detail and it is without doubt the most tedious part of the book um, he, he, he has a chapter and verse on lots of things that the Greeks and the Romans believed and I'll just summarize it by saying they believed lots of things but they did not believe in bodily resurrection if you had said to one of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans uh, do you believe that a man dies and could possibly come back alive physically they would say well there's one thing I can tell you matey it won't be that that certainly does not happen everybody knows that if only it did happen but it doesn't but you may say well there are other things like it aren't they for example their emperors were said to become God there was the divinization of the emperors but it, it wasn't ever said that they came back alive physically apart from Nero there was a rumor that Nero had come back but that was a very odd sort of thing not a regular thing the emperors went to heaven and it was their souls that became God and uh, Tom Wright says that in that ancient world death was uh, the realm of witless shadows in a murky world so after death you might become a spirit or a ghost or a half a being or something like that but not raised from the dead there are legends of dying and rising gods Adonis, Persephone, corn kings, corn mothers and sometimes these are referred to but they are not human bodily resurrection they're myths and stories to do with other worlds to do with realms of fantasy none of these people at all ever claim that human beings come alive again physically after death of all possibilities they would say 
unanimously. We all know that dead men do not rise. And that's why when the Apostle Paul went to the Greek um, centre of learning, they sneered at him. When they heard him talk about the resurrection of the dead, they sneered because they were saying, we're clever people, we've heard it all, we know resurrection from the dead just does not happen. There's the ancient context. Let's look at the Jewish context because the people who were writing about the resurrection of Jesus were writing in a Jewish context. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, which Scriptures? So, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of Genesis, bodily death is the consequence of sin. So, Adam sinned according to the book of Genesis and therefore died. And that sets the agenda, that's the problem that God promises to solve. Uh, And from a very early stage, the idea that God can solve that problem um, is there in the background. So Hebrews 11 is a reference to Abraham, who was going to sacrifice his son Isaac and kill him, but he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead or bring him back from the dead. Um, so that's at an early stage. So, I don't th- so Tom Wright is much more negative about that than I think he should be. I think that, that promise has been there. There were hints of this through the Bible. So Enoch, um, who I think is in Genesis chapter 5, was somebody who walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say very much more than that. It's just a hint. Elijah was taken into heaven um, in a whirlwind. So, he didn't die. In that sense, Job says things like, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will, in, in my flesh I will see God. Um, Psalm 16 is uh, um, quoted in the New Testament in this connection, and it says... My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So no decay is envisaged in Psalm 16. Psalm 73 it says afterwards you will receive me to glory. Isaiah 52, 53 uh, is about a suffering servant who, although it doesn't um, specifically say he will rise from the dead, Yet, there is a jigsaw puzzle which includes the fact that he dies and includes the fact that he ends up being raised very high uh, and exalted. And how you put that together, well, uh, it's a hint of resurrection. Later on in the Bible, in Daniel, is uh, a specific reference which says... Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's difficult to see what that means if it isn't a a reference to future judgment and resurrection. 
and that's a key um, paragraph uh, for later uh, and Ezekiel 37 <coughs> talks about uh, a, a vision of dry bones uh, dead bodies coming together uh, coming back to life again and it says that these dry bones are the whole house of Israel and it is coupled with settling Israel back in her land so again it's a hint it's rather perplexing how it all should be fulfilled but it does talk about bones coming to life physically and it links it with the promise of God to settle Israel in the land so there's uh, the Jewish scriptures so I'll stop there and ask if there are any anything you want to have clarified Mm. well I think I'm going to argue that the two things are the same that the promise of restoration to Israel is fulfilled in the resurrection and you've got two lines here that actually intersect in the end Uh, so to summarise the Jewish context in this period that Jesus was in which is called Second Temple Judaism again there were various ideas uh, so the Sadducees for example said there is no resurrection uh, the Pharisees had a different view they believed that there would be a final day of judgement resurrection of the righteous and the wicked so that's what Martha says when Jesus asks her about her brother Lazarus and she says, I know he will rise again at the last day. And interestingly, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus claims that he encapsulates in himself all that Martha could see God would do on the last day. Um, so this basically... Uh, when they're talking about resurrection they're talking about a one stage resurrection which is coupled with judgment so that's the context uh, let's look now at what uh, is said in the Bible and we'll look at what Paul says and we'll look at what the gospel says before we try and put it all together so Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, makes a statement which I've written out pretty much in full love sort of translated it myself I want to remind you of the good news I good news you good news to you because he uses the idea of gospel as a noun as a, and a verb and he says you received this and he uses a word which means to pass on a tradition uh, and I traditioned you I passed on to you as of first importance and then he says a, num a number of bullet points that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter then to the twelve after that to more than 500 most of whom are still living 
then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that uh, uh, is in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and there are a number of features of that which I'll draw attention to in a moment but just notice this way he's done it as a formula that something, that something, that something and that something. It's got the appearance of a little formula uh, which has been concocted, which he's repeating, which they might almost have memorised. Uh, and that's of course the idea of a tradition, um, which uh, is the verb that's used. Uh, I've, here is something like a, um, a package which uh, I'm passing on to you and I want you to keep that package as it is and pass it on to other people. So uh, this is very early, it's 51 or 52 AD, you can date the letter from the things that happen in it. That's 21 years or so after the death of Jesus. Um, and by that time it is a tradition. It's, n it's a fixed, non-negotiable tradition. In other words, the objection that this was made up later and read backwards into history doesn't fit the facts. It's already a fixed package that you're not allowed to add things to or mess about with. I tradition you, I hand this over to you, says Paul. Clearly, Jesus was believed to be genuinely dead. That's part of what's said. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. And this is something that was capable of living eyewitness proof. So Paul does not say, I felt I saw Jesus and other people felt that they saw him. He says he was literally seen by Peter, by James, um, and at one point by 500 people at once, most of whom are still living, is what he said. So he's, as far as he's concerned, this is something that you really could prove, that you really could um, substantiate. All you had to do was buy a ticket and go over, um, over the Mediterranean and talk to these people. So uh, it's like uh, Diego Maradona's Hand of God goal, um, which uh, was, uh, I believe, in 1986 in, in the Football World Cup. Um, there are people sitting here who can remember seeing that. Um, so it's not, uh, you know, it might be, whatever it is, 21 years ago, but it's not so far away that nobody knows. You know, who knows whether that happened or not. Uh, there are people here who were alive to see it. It's that sort of distance to the resurrection from where Paul is, is writing. Uh, a little bit more on Paul. He's, he himself says that this marks out Jesus uh, as the Son of God with power. And also another key point is that this is the initial part of a two-stage resurrection process. The Jews believed in a one-stage resurrection right at the end of the world. But if this is true, it's actually a two-stage resurrection that number one, Messiah is raised, and then stage two, the people that belong to him are raised. And that's the very point 
Paul goes on to make in 1 Corinthians 15 as first fruits and then following on from that something else a little bit like um, a snake getting through a bamboo fence first the head of the snake goes through then the rest of the body follows it's saying that if Jesus rose from the dead he's um, he experiences physical resurrection and the people that are joined to him his body as it were will in due course themselves experience resurrection and that two stage process is actually referred to in lots of places in the Bible for example Romans 8 the spirit if the spirit lives in you the spirit will give life to your mortal bodies that's the same argument and uh, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if this didn't happen then Yahweh the Lord God has not brought salvation he has not solved the problem he has not fulfilled his promises and Christian faith is a useless thing okay there's um, the resurrection and Paul we're going to look at the resurrection in the gospels and again there's a lot to be said about this but I'll just summarize some of these things one of the features of the gospel stories is that they are unpolished as you read them there are some of the references you find that uh, people have got room to object and to say it doesn't say that there it says that there there are two angels there but only one you know they obviously haven't got their act together and come up with a combined um, effort without any rough edges the stories show the mark of being unpolished they all talk about the empty tomb which again is an objection to the idea of just seeing Jesus in your heart well what happened to his body all the stories say they went to look for his body and it could not be found that the molecules of Jesus' body are nowhere to be found in this part of creation uh, they're somewhere else the empty tomb uh, the stories talk about angels they talk about initial misunderstanding by the disciples they talk about testimony from women who went to the tomb uh, there are sightings of the risen Jesus who seem to be the same and yet different that's a common feature in most if not all of the stories there is also a struggle to believe something so odd uh, in Matthew's Gospel it says that even when people have had several chances to see Jesus they some still doubted so the, the bio, these accounts are honest about how really difficult it was to believe this it's, it was so odd, so strange and yet in all these we find people's lives were changed their minds were changed and their lives were changed so um, let's notice something about these accounts uh, some further strangely there are very few I think there are probably no biblical quotations that adorn the accounts if they were read backwards you would expect people to say and so was fulfilled and this reminds me of this and so on but that isn't the case um, again if it was being read backwards and written up later it's surprising that the gospel accounts contain virtually no mention of the general resurrection 
the risen Jesus seems different and yet he's a real human being uh, there are other accounts which say talk about a, a moving cross and Jesus head touching the sky a very extraordinary Jesus but the canonical gospels he's in some ways just very ordinary he can eat food, eat fish, he can stand and talk um, it's surprising that uh, women are put in the role of witnesses because in those days uh, women were not counted as uh, fully competent witnesses and I think uh, and uh, Tom Wright puts it this way if you wanted to explain things about Jesus if you wanted to be a propagandist you would not have told stories like this you would not have made it up that way you would have done a better job you'd have put something more polished that doesn't have the holes in it like uh, having women going to the tomb first etc so let's try and put this all together and perhaps we can bear in mind some of those objections the context in which resurrection uh, is claimed is in one in which the resurrection is either unthinkable or far off in the future they did not expect something like this and that counts strongly against the idea of wishful thinking you know that they just hoped Jesus would rise from the dead it is strongly against the idea that they've copied the idea from somewhere else because there aren't any, anywhere else to copy it it was just a complete surprise and for that reason the fact that they ended up believing it well how can you explain that if it didn't really happen the attestation the, um, the witnesses are many and they are early that is good evidence for believing anything the uh, uh, the claims for the resurrection have got at least these three strands the people who saw Jesus the fact that his tomb was empty and the fact that it all fits in with scripture the people who were best placed to know that's the people near to the event who had the opportunity to check it out clearly believed it they were willing to die for it and again the idea of it being a conspiracy or made up would be a very strange thing to think that people were willing to die for something that they really knew was, was a lie uh, the alternative explanations require bigger if not enormous leaps of faith so the idea that it was a conspiracy or the so-called swoon theory which says that Jesus didn't really die he was just sort of rendered unconscious and then you, uh, he was losing blood he was um, uh, dehydrated and they put him in a cold cave and uh, after leaving him there for three days he was better and he managed to roll away the stone and uh, make his way into Jerusalem and appear to his disciples and when they saw him instead of saying oh you look awful we better get an ambulance they all said wow you are the son of God so that's the swoon theory and it requires an enormous leap of faith I think to believe that I once heard it said if you believe that you believe anything um, 
as we investigate what they actually said, uh, what the circumstances were, we should be open to having our worldview challenged. If we started off saying resurrection is so unlikely it can't happen, as we look at this evidence perhaps we should be prepared to be challenged. It doesn't usually happen. It's an extremely odd thing. But that's what Christianity is claiming. This is the one place where God really has raised somebody from the dead in this way. And our worldview ought to be challenged. If the resurrection is true, it is saying God has the solution to the problem of physical death. Somebody has. And uh, the solution is enmeshed in the Hebrew and Christian tradition and revelation and big picture. That's where the explanation lies. Jesus is validated, he is proven to be somebody, well, prophet actually, because he said he would rise from the dead and he did. Messiah, if you follow the connections. He is proved to be Lord because he is raised above everywhere else. Uh, and he's proved to be the Son of God himself as you follow the threads from it. Jesus is the spearhead then of promises to Israel because this is the place where God's promises are fulfilled. It's not the way they thought it was going to be, but actually this is where his promises to Israel are fulfilled. And Jesus uh, is also the spearhead of the future of the human race. That if this is true, there is a new world coming, there is a new life coming, and it is to be found in Jesus. Um, all sorts of wonderful um, things follow from that and if we were to grasp this completely we would say this changes everything thank you right. um, so we usually have time for questions or comments It's, um, it's one of the things that he, he uh, says in here and I think he's right that, uh, uh, yeah, I, I too I'm not sure that I've completely got that idea but he's saying that um, let's say for, for like the thief on the cross um, Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise so the thief on the cross died and he had life after death uh, he's with Christ in heaven but he is not raised from the dead yet. Uh, that's something that happens afterwards. So, if you like, there's three stages. Uh, life, well, four. Life, death as an, as, a, as an instantaneous thing. The continuing existence of this person, life after death. But resurrection follows after that. So that's to distinguish it from being a ghost, from living on in people's hearts, from floating up into the sky. Because the, there's lots of, lots of religions believe those things. 
But the uniqueness of Christianity is that it's not saying that. It's saying life after life after death. Does that make it clearer? Well, you, you, you didn't because I did it very quickly. Um, that's the bit about this, well, yes, it would take longer to, to do that, but the, when it says Jesus rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and you say which scriptures, um, I think there's a whole class of scriptures that talk about the future of Israel, uh, living in the land, um, the new environment for Israel which uh, in New Testament terms are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's where this turnaround comes that's where um, the exile is reversed so you, you can add to that to, you know, all, the, all the promises are yes and amen in, in Christ Jesus so all the promises everything that is headed the Old Testament is headed towards finds its fulfilment in, in Jesus. So I'm saying that the, um, or I'm proposing that the whole class of um, promises to Abraham, promises to Moses, uh, promises to Joshua, um, Psalm 95, uh, there is a rest that remains to the people of God because if Joshua had led them into rest, there wouldn't be a, a promise still, still held out. That uh, that Paul had in mind all those scriptures so I haven't argued it but I'm, I'm saying that that exists I would have thought that the Ezekiel well certainly the Ezekiel passage referred primarily to um, revival to resurrection I mean the, the vision is one of resurrection but the, it seems to me the meaning is, is that there is um, you know there's this I'm sure that's true, but the question is whether that exhausts the meaning of it. Because um, it does say, in its context, I will open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I the Lord have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. So Ezekiel saw it in the context of these larger promises to Israel. Um, so I, I put it under the heading of hints because I think it's very tantalising that you have here resurrection, promises to Israel, uh, you know, the work that is yet to come, all put under the same, in the same context. Doesn't, I don't think it proves it, but I think it, 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 it's suggested. I suppose you'd have to follow up the theme in fact of the return of life, which does have both those aspects. And Jesus talks about giving life now. Yes. And yet, obviously, it also, in some sense, refers to resurrection at all as well. Yeah, whether it refers specifically to physical resurrection. 
the Ezekiel one. Well, yeah. Uh, um, I think, oh, well, I put it under the heading of hints, and I'll probably keep it that way. I mean, the, the, the new ingredient that Jesus brought was a two stage resurrection, um, of which he is the first um, example, uh, and yet it uh, linked up to the end of the world. Yeah. So she was expecting that not just that Lazarus would immediately um, experience some kind of spiritual resurrection, but there would be a day in the future when there's some other kind of resurrection. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the standard sort of Pharisee, Pharisee view. I mean, the fact that the Pharisees weren't wrong on, on everything, I mean, that, that, I think they had the right idea on that. That's, so that's a world view that at the end of the world there will actually be a resurrection coupled with judgment uh, and that's what we have to look forward to but the, the thing that Jesus is doing is saying well I can bring the power of that uh, and the reality of that to bear now this minute because I'm here so Lazarus can get up now um, that's as I understand it the, the spectacular point of that Bill would that be that fourth stage you're referring to there's uh you said when we die, there's like an intermediate stage um, where our bodies mm. wouldn't be resurrected. Yeah. It'd be on the last day when Jesus comes. Yeah. That's when we get our resurrected bodies. That's correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and Jesus is, is sort of temporarily bringing the future into the present by raising Lazarus's physical body there and then. That's what he's claiming to do. Um, It is. I mean, you can think about it from various points of view. Uh, I mean, this thing was just thinking about it really from the um, fact, did it happen? Uh, there's lots of evidence that it did. But you can think of it in terms of, uh, yeah, the wonder of it, the amazement of it, uh, which the hymns do. And how many 500 people saw it as well? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, he, yes. He, Jesus said, "Go to Galilee, and um, I will meet you there." Uh, so I presume that's where where that happened. Yeah. Um, That's correct. Yes, I, I think the inconsistencies are more apparent than real. Uh, I, I don't think there are genuine um, contradictions. 
there are apparent inconsistencies and, and I found this helpful reading the book because I'd always wondered why that is but I, I think it's, it, it makes a lot of sense to say here is bits as we come to these parts of the Gospels they have not felt it right to tinker with what people saw to add things to it to sort of spiritualise it or even to say anything devotional I mean it, it, it doesn't they don't say oh isn't this wonderful they just say what happened don't they? And, and that's because that is what happened um, it's almost like yeah. likening it really to a, a police report an investigation you know you have several witnesses and they take notes down and from a witness's point of view this is yeah. what you saw yeah. not no one witness in any in any particular case has seen everything oh yeah that's right and they've seen it from a different perspective and the point of a police investigation is then to put it all together to get the whole duty together yeah and that's to me that kind of explanation helps me understand how actually they don't contradict they're just different and in the end it does add to the validity yeah I think it adds to the believability of it I, I, I was once present at an armed robbery and um I was asked to make a police statement and I could remember everything apart from where the uh, perpetrator went between going from here to there and I couldn't uh, I had no memory of that and I, so I didn't make it up I just said I don't know what happened and I went back to the scene of the crime later and I then realized that there was a pillar uh, in the in the bank and he'd gone round the back of the pillar and that's why I couldn't see him but if you'd written written it down uh, you would have said well he doesn't know what he's talking about because he, he he had no you know there's a glaring omission here this obviously can't be true but the omission was there because it was true there's another witness from another part of the bank who said yes I saw him he was there yes. it doesn't mean yes. Philip didn't say that but that means it's not true yes you just didn't see that part of it yeah Yeah, that's the sort of thing. And sometimes they say there, were, there was one angel or one young man there, and sometimes there are two. I'm afraid I don't have them catalogued in my mind, but that's the, the sort of thing that people say. But it's so human, isn't it? I mean, I've also testified that, you know, in the myself, but you know that under those situations, you don't remember everything necessarily. There isn't necessarily, it doesn't mean, it doesn't undermine the validity. Mm. Yeah. But it's showing that they are human. Yeah. You know, that someone says one went and another says two went. It doesn't mean that because there is slight inconsistency that therefore it just couldn't have happened. Yeah. Does it? It's just quite human to yeah. see it really happen. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think yeah, on that so particularly with Matthew and Mark's gospel, I think Mark wrote his gospel probably sometime after. And then Matthew wrote his based on Mark and adding bits of the people who made it perhaps Mark couldn't even longer and I suppose I, I often know sometimes the events aren't always in exactly the same order so one or other might have been mistaken about the exact order or the exact number of days between one event and the next but there was at least one story I can't remember which one it was where it was recorded in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke and what people said and the order of things 
slightly different. The words Jesus used were almost identical in every one. And I remember thinking of something Jesus himself said when he said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. And the important thing, which is what he said, are there. And yeah. they always seem to be right. At least in a particular story, I can't remember which story. Yes, I, I think if, if, if we're honest, uh, there are questions that could legitimately be asked. Why are things in this order, in this gospel, in this order, in this gospel? Why is there this exact phrasing here? Not quite the same as that one there. But, um, I mean, there are answers to those. And um, uh, I don't think it affects the, the, the truth of, uh, of the records. Well, there's a number of fact, there's a number of things going on there. Um, yeah, yeah when, when I'm saying argument for the defence, I, I mean to say an argument to pr to propose strongly um, that Christianity is true. So I suppose it's defending against the accusation that it's untrue. So um, yeah, I don't mean I don't. I, I, I mean to emphasise the strength of the argument rather than any sense of it being apologising for... Yeah, that, that's what I was no, trying to say. I mean, but there yeah. is also the case for taking some step further. It could be that we have enough argument here to persuade others that, well, yes, you have a good, you know, you've explained that part of it so we can accept why you think that way. But there's also the next stage of it being so compelling that in fact it persuades others yeah. who yeah. Well, th that's, that brings in things like worldview, because uh, if, if people don't necessarily argue with complete uh, rationality, do they, or don't, don't listen to things with complete rationality, because if somebody is saying, well, God doesn't exist anyway, they could be th saying in their minds, well, no matter what you tell me, I'm not going to believe it because God doesn't exist. And Jesus, I, I think it is Jesus who refers to this sort of thing when he says uh, it isn't a problem with the evidence. Um, they have Moses and the law. 
let them be, they should believe them and they won't believe even though somebody should rise from the dead so there's a sort of tension here um, that you can present a strong argument very strongly and yet people will not believe it. Um, it it isn't that there's a lack I mean that's what Jesus is saying it isn't that there's a lack of evidence it, there's a hardness in people's hearts it isn't that we shouldn't present arguments and um, uh, this book does that much better than I've done uh, and William Lane Craig does that much better than I've done but the, you know, whoever does it the, the raw material is the same which I'll try to present this evening and I think that, that's the, the strength of, of this guy he argues it very carefully and, and says actually there's no excuse for not believing it to be honest you know, whether you call, call yourself a historian or a theologian or whatever there is, there's no excuse for not believing it people will but which just goes to show sorry Steve that at the end of the day you can have a wonderfully formed argument with evidence but again if it's not a hard conviction you know the Dawkins is of this world unless the spirit of God touches it or whatever yes. it's never going to be a, a change of mind yes yes mm-hmm. I think often people just tend to assume that people in the past are stupid sort of all historians are faced with this issue you've got um, Judaism going along as it does and you suddenly have Christianity saying these things what on earth made the difference and it, uh, yeah, like you said the only explanation that's going to fit is that it actually happened that this resurrection this thing that I mean they knew it was impossible it isn't that they were you know, more gullible in those days they knew that doesn't happen the only reason they believed it was that it did. And of course, there's just the strength of time. If everything is hanging on the resurrection, you'd think there'd be many more people out to completely disprove it than there have been. I mean, mm. the whole faith is hanging on this yes. one thing. Yes. It still took, stood the test of time. That's true, so yes, that's true. It would have been more easy to disprove if they hadn't God. Yeah. Specifically, said that the disciples wouldn't 
It's sort of psychologically unbelievable, isn't it, that people who were so terrified would suddenly become so bold. Okay, well, let's, let's draw to a close. I mean, it's worth just pointing out that the, what's in this event is a, is a promise of what's yet to come. Uh, and I think that we do sometimes forget that. We talk about um, Christianity, we go, we're going to go to heaven and go to be with the Lord, which is far better but the promises of a, of a whole new world that this is the, the uh, first indication of the whole of creation being restored and like the book of Revelation says there will be a new heaven and a new earth no more sorrow or sighing or mourning um, there will be human life on a, uh, on a level that none of us have ever experienced it that's what's, that's what's being uh, foreshadowed not foreshadowed you know, you get the down payment of it. Um, that's just amazing. It really is uh, just amazing. If only we could grasp what is linked up with this, what is actually saying is in store for us. Well, let's stop there. I think perhaps we could pray. Let's, let's do that. We thank you, Lord, for these things that we've been able to think about this evening. We thank you that our faith is on a sure foundation and we pray that we may each be strengthened in our thinking and in our um, living. We pray that even when we feel at our very lowest, that this may be something which is as bedrock for us. And we thank you for the great hope uh, that uh, the Spirit who now lives within us will give life to our mortal bodies. We thank you for the great hope that when he comes, we shall see him, for we shall be like him. We thank you for that promise that you make all things new. So uh, help us, we pray, to uh, believe these things and to live in them and to rejoice in them. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.